Welcome back to Probably But Politics. This episode, Papua New Guinea. Mm. We're doing another island. We're kind of islandy recently. Uh, and we're going to the Pacific. I like the Pacific. Yes, we were in Timor-Leste a little while ago, and now we're on uh, New Guinea Island, again on the eastern half. Both of those islands, both of those countries share another half an island mm-hmm. with Indonesia, but <laughs> <laughs> different islands. Yes. <laughs> there are, safe to say, a lot of islands in that yes. region of the world. It turns out that Indonesia has several of them. Um, Papua New Guinea also has several of them. Um, there's a little bit of a, um, an independence movement that we might touch on for an entire island. Mm. Well, there's an island that has actually another island with it. Um, <laughs> anyway, we can get into that <laughs> when we get there. Yes, one thing at a time. And I feel like there's going to be a lot of things. So uh, there's a lot to say about this election. There's a ton of things. Um, so let's just jump into it, okay? All right. Okay, so... Papua New Guinea is where we are, eastern yes. half of New Guinea Island, right? Shared with Indonesia, population, 9 million. Mm-hmm. Population of languages, over 850. Yes. That's a ton of languages per person, per capita. Mm-hmm. One of the most linguistically diverse in the world. Also, Papua New Guinea shares an island with Indonesia. We share a head of state with Papua New Guinea, Queen Elizabeth II. Okay. <laughs> Commonwealth <laughs> Nations. Yes, after Papua New Guinea got independence in 1975, okay? Mm-hmm. Slight bit of history here. Uh, since 1975, Papua New Guinea has had nine different prime ministers. You might yes. think, that sounds pretty stable. Only nine in like 47 years? But <laughs> those nine prime ministers, those nine different men have been in 15 different terms as prime minister back to front and yeah. with with gaps in between um the most recent of which is peter o'neill he stepped or he resigned in 2019 after he was elected and so we currently have a prime minister named james marape historically unstable parliament going on we can talk a little bit about that but do you have any opening remarks kaylee yeah <laughs> about I think... papua new guinea <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think it's gonna. This is yeah. You're you're laying the picture here. I think just like one fact that stuck out to me that can sort of give you a sense like of how, like how shifting the the seat the political scene is is that in the nine elections, um, the turnover rate of MPs, which are the elected members of parliament, um, is about fifty four point eight percent. So every election just over half of all the people who had been elected in the previous election are not elected in the, in the, pre, the, the preceding election. Um, so that's like, that's a lot of people participating uh, and being elected and unelected and reelected and, and all that sort of thing. Yeah. There are, there are a ton of people um, for a rather small population in this country. There are, in the last election, there were over 3,000 different nominated candidates. Um, this year, that has dropped by almost 30%. It's down to 2,300, a huge drop-off in candidates actually running. Um, but just to get back on that um, point about instability, right? So this election and previous ones, because there's so many non-confidence votes, because 
previously and still, there are so many different parties represented. Um, currently, there are 21 different parties. We're throwing all the numbers out here. But currently, there are 21 different parties represented in Parliament and 14 independents. There's only yeah. 111 members currently elected and 21 different parties, 14 <laughs> independents, and mm-hmm. zero women. Yeah, that's like a big one to note is like, historically very few women elected but in the last election the 2017 election uh no women so that is like a that's a real talking point over this mm-hmm. current election yeah yeah i was saying there's over 3000 people nominated last time and that dropped by a third the number of women running for office has dropped in half it was over 100 it was almost 170 back in 2017 and is now only 86 in a country of 9 million people um but okay what i did want to say all the numbers all the numbers but the stability of the governments right they to try and make them last a little bit longer i thought this was super interesting there's the law enacted in which you cannot a government cannot suffer a no a no confidence vote in the first 18 months in office and also (laughs) in the last year of their mandate so between one and a half years and four years you're done (laughs) <laughs> but yeah. if you make it to four years you're just guaranteed that fifth year as a bonus yeah oh, that's that is interesting i guess i've never like, seen it seems, that before yeah and i think that so it sort of seems like there are a lot of ideas like floating around about how can this process like the electoral process be made more stable because there are like different um, uh, um, laws have been proposed. Interestingly, um, the current prime minister, uh, James Marape, um, is sort of, he was initially supporting a bill that would introduce the reserving of seats for women in parliament so that a certain number every, every time there would have to be five women elected or, or given seats in parliament, um, as well as, uh, a law called the Organic Law on the Integrity of Political Parties and Candidates, um, which would require smaller parties to join larger parties um, and establish a party quota for women. Um, He has since backed off those because uh, what in what people are speculating is a bid for re-election because those laws may make it harder for him to get elected in the next election. Um, But Mm -hmm. previously he had been supporting it. And I think it's indicative of like, there are just sort of ideas floating around, like how do we address um, this this instability and and build a system that is maybe more coherent i guess yeah like the interesting thing here right is that there are so many parties right and the so i guess if we just talk a little bit and slow down about mm-hmm. what papua new guinea is like on the ground right because mm-hmm. there's 21 different parties in in parliament right now there's the, the least amount of support that got a seat in the last election was a party that received 0.2% of the vote that got 16,429 votes and they got a seat, okay? The way that everybody is, is um, elected is that there's actually two different pools for the electorate. There are reserved seats, one for governors of each province and then one for... Um, two special regions, one for the Bougainville Autonomous Region and one for the National Capital Region, right? And then 20 other provinces that all get a, a member. And then there's 
90 some odd other seats which might be up for debate how many there actually are and how many are funded um (laughs) and those other seats are spread out over the entirety of Papua New Guinea there's small islands the election itself lasts for um this year like 13 days um because it was the start of it was delayed a week because of um the death of the deputy prime minister Sam Basil um and to have a state funeral but so you have this this huge diversity of islands um and also the big part of it is that there's not a lot of connection between these communities there's many small communities i was reading that 40 percent of the citizens of Papua New Guinea don't have access to global capital so they don't they're not connected to the world and they're not really connected to each other they have very tight-knit communities but those communities might be rather small and so it takes a long time to get all the votes and so you can have these very strong um, communities around say this Melanesian liberal party that gets 17,000 votes and gets a seat in a 9 million person country and those those seats that are all around they're not proportional representation but they are a a type of alternative vote um, where the members or the electors can rank their favorite three candidates but only the top three and then as those votes uh, as the people who get less votes go away then your vote gets transferred until one person has over 50 percent of the votes Mm -hmm. but you only but you can only list three of them for some reason which is a little (laughs) bit weird um it's it's a specific to uh png this type of voting um but it's these single member constituencies with instant runoff voting but that's what it is um and it allows for this kind of like super concentrated types of communities that all need representation it's kind of like an interesting way to provide this really local representation um and represent those different communities in parliament kind of weird that there's you know 850 languages it's hard to represent all of those different groups with only 100 seats but anyway yeah which i I will get to but i think uh, actually has become part of (laughs) part of the issue and the in the uh, part of an issue in in running this election this this mm-hmm. time around um but yeah i think like it's just to sort of introduce um kind of like a political scientist term um uh, P, uh png is kind of viewed as one of the most client uh, clientelist countries in the world um, mm-hmm. which means that voters are really focusing on valuing local uh, personal benefits more than looking at national issues um, or policies mm-hmm. um and so this also means that like yeah again you're, you're electing you're more likely to elect um, a friend or close or a family member um, and then uh, and often that can be sort of lead to like a block voting of of, of connections and, and favors and, and and those sorts of things um, mm-hmm. which is complicatedly tied into what we can get we can get into a little bit as, as we go here um, issues of uh, the integrity of the democracy in terms of uh, bribing and uh bribing and coercing and 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 mandating people vote a certain way um uh, but we'll get into that i think yeah i've seen that it seems like you are elected and then you go to parliament and then from there the coalitions are formed but not even necessarily along party lines like men like individual members are like parties are not so ideologically driven Mm -hmm. um and so there's not these kind of very strong 
um, ideological convictions within them. Yeah. And so there's more, it's a more representative kind of, um, but not even so much, right? Yeah. Um, like it's really based on like, if you, you're going to campaign in your community on what you can do for them. And so if you're doing something particularly around development issues, um, if you do mm-hmm. that successfully, you might get reelected. Um, but if you don't, you might not. But also, uh, it also means that, yeah, like you're saying, like uh, the, the, there's a tremendous amount of switching parties that takes place um, mm-hmm. as soon as, even as soon as they get in there. It's, it's not, uh, there's no party, not a big deal if you cross the floor there, for sure. Yeah. And I guess just before we start talking about some more maybe substantive points about this individual election and what's going forward, is that all of these elections are tainted with violence right Mm. um in 2017 over 200 deaths were recorded um during um the electoral process um there's widespread voter fraud um found and i think it was one in five women um felt like they were um not able to freely cast their vote Mm -hmm. um there were accounts of people having limbs removed for not voting certain ways. Um, and so it's not exactly a free and fair election either, even though it represents all of these diversities, that doesn't necessarily mean that it is a strong democratic democratic process um, happening during these elections, even though these elections take, you know, what was supposed to be um, almost three weeks, right, to go around to all these people and all of this stuff happens. Um, they're not necessarily overly democratic, despite having so many nominations and so many parties in parliament. Yeah. And and so 2017 is, is kind of noted as being particularly bad. So that, that's why I think a lot of the attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, international bodies and uh, election watchdogs that are watching this election. Um, but yeah, so the Australian National University, um, their analysis found failures in electoral rolls, um, theft and destruction of ballot ba- ballot boxes, uh, money politics, which is the payment by candidates for votes um, on a scale that was qualitatively different to previous elections. So it was like notably uh, worse than previous elections. I think that um, another election that was referenced uh, as being particularly bad was 2002 um, mm-hmm. and had similar problems. Um, so so there is a really a heightened awareness in this one, but also a concern that the conditions are such in, in uh, PNG at the moment that you could see that happen again this year um, in mm-hmm. terms of the politics and economy and stuff. Yeah. Now, also within all of this, right, there's been this civil unrest in the country mm-hmm. as well, um, surrounding um, the autonomous region of Bougainville that I talked about, where they have their own um, separate uh, elected member of parliament that's reserved for them. Um, and this is likely, or this is likely the final election in which the Bougainville autonomous region will actually be part of uh, Papua New Guinea. Right. Because so as part of a peace process to wind down that um, violence, there has been a, uh, a referendum held in um, Bougainville as so Bougainville is also basically in its entire own small island off the east coast of Papua New Guinea. Um, not 
only one island. It also has some other smaller islands around it. Um, but that seems to be the way that it is. Uh, and so they've had this referendum. And so they're electing members to parliament in this election there. Um, but the current prime minister has said that Bougainville will become independent um, likely in 27 or in 2027. Mm -hmm. um whereas they in their own referendum have said that they will be independent in 2025 um which could cause some difficulties um but it seems like somewhere in there as of uh 2019 when they had this referendum this autonomous region will become totally separate from png um Mm -hmm. and so that's also happening surrounding this violence that happened in this previous election um, was kind of that coming to a head at the same time. Um, so I don't know, Kaylee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and I think it's it's worth like on top of it, I guess, uh, sort of to, to to mention some of I know that we were saying earlier, like the national issues aren't necessarily what they're voting on, but I think mm-hmm. they do impact the tensions that exist um, because of the economic situation in in PNG, like uh, you know. Uh, the the vaccination rate is very low, but there's sort mm-hmm. of a there's been a lot of protests against uh, what is called the vaccine for jobs mandate, um, which is trying to encourage I believe uh, people in the country to get uh, vaccinated. But currently, only about three percent of the population is uh, fully vaccinated, and I think six percent are vaccinated at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and vaccinated and so specifically against COVID nineteen. Yes, that's what I mean. Yes, yeah, sorry, COVID nineteen. Um, uh, sorry, uh, and yeah. So and and so this sort of the effects of uh, the pandemic and associated lockdowns on on unrest are important to consider as well as well as their impacts on the economy, um, and as well as a, a sort of an ongoing struggle about uh, like right now, um, the country is very dependent on natural resource exports and. Uh, and they're not, in general, um, and the question of how do you control those and diversify those um, to increase the the uh, wealth of your citizens is is really important um, in a country like this to int- for the future and for future stability, I guess. Yeah. So recently, I think um, less than a week ago at this point, um, to find a home for those natural resources. Um, China has visited uh, PNG with saying that they will um, w- they would like to import their natural resources. The Chinese foreign minister Wang Yi was in the country on what has been hailed as a controversial state visit, um, where members of parliament and other organizations have said that nobody should be making these sorts of deals on the doorstep of an election, right? So they're saying they're lame ducks. You can't do this. <laughs> if you're within your last 12 months where we can't have a no confidence vote, you're a lame duck and you, <laughs> and you shouldn't be making. But this is true, right? So there's this interaction of PNG, which, as you were mentioning before we started recording, Kaylee, that in the Pacific, there's kind of this sphere of influence of Australia and the West and the Commonwealth and China, which is um, increasingly looking to gain footholds in these island nations uh, in the region, right? And so the, um, currently, Papua New Guinea is quite close with Australia, right? It was um, 
administered by Australia until 1975 following uh, the world wars. Um, but then once it gained independence, it has still had quite a close relationship with Australia, right? Australia is a Commonwealth mm-hmm. nation as well. Um, Australia uh, provides for this specific election, even they were going to provide um, police um, infrastructure, um, vests and stuff for um, police officers. Um, but then at the same time, now we have China stepping in and looking to um, help enrich the country for their natural resources. Yeah, so it's it's really, I think it's it's an interesting, so this is something that's happening for a lot of Pacific Island countries. So yeah, if you're interested in this, it's, or I think that often these countries can be written off as quite small, but they're considered a major playing, like a major uh, piece in the international puzzle of of, uh, of influence um, for sort of Australia and then by extension the US and China um, and it's sort of a question of and, and often these countries are make, they're asking themselves a question of who will be the better partner to help them achieve their goals um, and, mm-hmm. and to a certain and China is really making a play um, in a number of those countries and specifically Papua New Guinea which, which we're focusing on um, on this idea of like a partnership that is about like mutual respect and common development is sort of the words that they, that they're using. But I think we can also look at this as saying that uh, arguing that uh, China is argue uh, often arguing that their approach to development is different than the West, where they're not going to interfere in terms of uh, uh, of how uh, and and try and dictate how you spend the money or do it in these specific ways. They'll just provide you the resources and then they'll take the resources that they want in the agreement um, to supply their their citizens. Um, and, and it's not so uh, they're they would argue that they're not making them uh, making these countries as indebted um, in, in the way that uh, di- the dynamics can often be between developing uh, countries and uh, Western countries uh, in, in terms of obligations. Uh, yeah, so I think, and, and I think that's an interesting uh, conversation for them to have, and the decisions that they make in terms of uh, of, of where they see their future. Um, I think that you see in this election, the the two primary candidates have different ideas about this partnership themselves, um, and and whether they should, you know, nationalize and focus inwardly to grow themselves, or if they should be connecting with uh, China and making these agreements. Um, and then the the West is very concerned, right? Because China, in in initial agreements, I think it has backed off um, on these a little bit, or or several of these specific countries have been told that they are not allowed to agree to these to a certain extent from Western mm-hmm. countries. Um, but China is offering um, uh, points around cybersecurity and training of police forces. Um, as well as sort of uh, greater and more uh, predominant access to natural resources, which if you're a Western country might give you cause for concern. Uh, certainly a country like Australia, which often uh, geopolitically feels like it is the it is isolated as the only sort of Western country in the region um, for whatever that uh, for whatever you think of that. Um, and, uh, and and so there's sort of a sense uh, that, we that that this these relationships need to be highly scrutinized um, and it can become quite a hot topic uh, for debate and sometimes uh, a bit of a racist one but we could we don't have to get into that i guess (laughs) Mm -hmm. okay so let's not get into that then but 
let's get into um, how there are more districts to be elected in this election than the previous. In 2017 and previous elections, there were 111 seats. This year, seven seats have been added to a total of 118. Maybe, maybe not. The ballots were printed before they were added. They had to be thrown away. They had to be reprinted. Chaos. <laughs> Actually, just such a waste of paper. Um, but like, <laughs> primarily, it's just the way that it was introduced. It, I think it introduces a lot of complications. Um, yeah, so you're adding seven new districts, which was was something that had been uh, recommended in uh, assessments of uh, how to improve democracy there in 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 Papua New Guinea. Um, because, you know, based on census data, um, and how the populations are growing, um, but the sort of the implementation of it, uh, I believe it was like after the last budget. So it wasn't accounted for, um, in December of 2021. So it's very recently that they've decided to do this. And, and I think like kind of the, the main concern is that it will introduce an administrative nightmare. Um, so PNG's Auditor General it was recently quoted as complaining that his office has challenges in auditing the 1,500 government entities. There are 42 national departments, 21 provincial governments, 20 hospital boards, 321 local governments, 432 service improvement <laughs> plans, 487 statutory authorities, and 155 business arms. And the parliament just added an additional seven districts. Oh and so it's goodness. just sort of says, <laughs> it's like, not that these numbers were important, but it just seems like the issue primarily is that it was, it was just sort of added. It is a tremendous introduction of bureaucracy. What mm-hmm. was needed, it's not been given the appropriate amount of time. And mm-hmm. I think we see that in a few different areas in terms of like, I think there was like an illegal firearms bill that won't be properly mm-hmm. implemented. There is like police forces that are un- improperly funded. So a lot of people or not enough people may be trying to do a lot of work. Well, and beyond just that, I mean, I feel for this guy, right? He's got <laughs> <laughs> He's got more. He's got another seven guys. He's got to figure out, right? But beyond that, those seats aren't financed, right? They're not in the budget, and it seems like there's coming challenges to whether or not those seats are even valid. Yeah. um, After the election happens, and the issue is that those seats change the boundaries of other seats, right? Mm -hmm. And if those seats are invalid, then what happens to the redrawn lines that are around those seats, which are now not represented by the regions that are invalid the whole thing could be a nightmare and the whole thing might have to be redone whether or not those seats are valid or not right which i'm sure is even bigger nightmare for this guy forget his name but (laughs) yeah i I didn't get his name but he's got 20 hospital boards and now he's got (laughs) at least a couple more to be added yeah no I, I, i think it's just it just really it puts up this sort of i think like uncertainty is not good when you're trying to create stability i guess and that probably is an obvious uh statement (laughs) but yeah no that's totally fair it's and it seems like those are things that are trying to happen in the country right Mm -hmm. is these these changes in laws about when governments can have non-confidence votes it's these ideas from um marape about let's consolidate some parties let's try and have these ideas kind of come forward and let's think to the future and this kind of thinking to the future of let's say okay let's go with china instead of australia seems like there's all these big ideas right but it just seems so difficult especially given the Mm -hmm. the violence that can take place um but 
Very interesting. And I think this is an election that following in the weeks after it, there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff that is continued. Maybe there's going to be more in the news afterwards than there is now, because there's honestly not not that much to find right now. Yeah. And I, I have a proposal for an episode, if if the audience wants it, that we could do in the future is talking okay. about uh, is. And you know what? Since I'm researching the whole history of South America, <laughs> maybe Alex could take this one of uh, of of modern day sort of um, uh, global areas in the world where global superpowers are fighting it out, and we can maybe expand because um, I feel like I, I only scratched the surface for the listener if they're interested on sort of what is going on between China and and the West in in the Pacific. Um, but if that's interesting to you, let us know. Okay, modern day modern day global superpower power struggles specifically in the pacific or do you want me to do all of, all of the globe well i feel like i'm going to be very kind and show, show you a <laughs> kind thing it would be and say we could just focus on the pacific but if you want to take on the world you let me know i would take on the world but let's just <laughs> let's just do the let's just do the south pacific um but okay listen that is the papua new guinea election um, coming up here between July 9th and the 22nd of 2022, electing their 118 members of national parliament. The two leaders um, going into that are James Marape of the Pengu Party, uh, who's been prime minister since 2019, and Peter O'Neill, leader of the People's National Congress, who was elected in 2017 to prime ministership and resigned. Um so that is the election to look forward to. Um, hopefully there is less violence into it, um, and hopefully things um, go okay, uh, and there's better um, representation to be found uh, in the national parliament. But, Kaylee, somebody who hasn't had any representation so far in this episode of Probably About Politics is yeah. Antonio Gutierrez. What's he been up to? Yeah, yeah uh, this week no other Gutierrez mentioned um but uh so this is going to be um uh, a bit of a I, I'm, I'm concerned there may be a lot of numbers in this one as well i'm realizing maybe a numbers heavy episode um but we're going to talk about <laughs> we're going to talk about uh uh global food security uh, or global food insecurity uh maybe more accurately um which is uh an issue that the secretary general has been highlighting of late um and and particularly in connection to global crisis um so i don't don't know if you heard but sudan is actually about to go into discussion uh peace talks um to try and resolve conflict that has been going on there um but if you look at what uh, some of the connections that the secretary general is making between food insecurity and conflict um i think there's a really good um reason to consider uh that as a, a priority issue um i think that he said or there the horn of africa is currently suffering its longest drought in four decades uh, which is impacting more than 10 uh, 10 million people uh well uh for example continuous there's continuous conflict in ethiopia which we've we've covered previously and somalia also in south sudan um, uh, Yemen and Madagascar, in addition to Ethiopia, uh, there is IPC level five uh, uh, catastrophic or famine conditions. 
Um, so that's uh, about uh, uh, about half a million people, I think, are at that level. Um, and then globally, uh, 44 million people in 38 countries are at an emergency level of hunger known as IPC4, which is just one step away from famine. Um, and so what he was doing was he was presenting at the Security Council. Um, and I think this quote that he said there is actually really useful to consider. He says, let there be no doubt. When this council debates conflict, you debate hunger. When you make decisions about peacekeeping and political missions, you're making decisions about hunger. And when you fail to reach consensus, hungry people pay. Uh, So 140 million people are suffering acute hunger around the world. um, And uh, or 140 million of people suffering acute hunger around the world are in just 10 countries. They are Afghanistan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Ethiopia, Haiti, Nigeria, Pakistan, South Sudan, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen, um, eight of which are count are, are on the Security Council's uh, current agenda. Uh, yeah, so I think that's kind of an interesting connection that was being uh, really clearly drawn by this the chief, the UN chief, um, and something to think about: how is access to food related to global stability, which is maybe pretty obvious, I guess, if you think about it, but uh, mm-hmm. but really starkly drawn there. Um, and then so another thing that he noted was also that um, that Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine is in itself sort of a declaration of war on global food security. I don't know if you heard, but uh, Ukraine is is somewhat of a breadbasket to the world, and mm-hmm. there is uh, and and several uh, uh, re- uh, representatives from a couple of countries that were attending um, his speech there uh, confirmed with him uh, that Ukraine's agricultural production and the food and in addition the food and fertilization production of russia and belarus um needs to be continued because it is an immediate threat uh to global food security that will result in further famine destabilization and mass migration Hmm. so fun stuff (laughs) the ipc that you mentioned um for those following along at home is the integrated food security phase classification where stage five is at least 20% of households face a complete lack of food or other basic needs and mortality rates exceed two per 10,000 per day, um, which are truly devastating conditions that um, I just learned about. And that seems awful. Yeah. And I think it's, it's just uh, really helpful to see how immediately we are all connected. I think drawing that connection between Ukraine to really see how it is i think sometimes Mm -hmm. we can get very focused on one conflict but ultimately what is happening in ukraine is also impacting uh conflicts in sudan and ethiopia um through food so in a situation like that right where these famine conditions are ongoing and have been for a long time what does the un do yeah, so a lot of it seems so a lot of it seems to be around uh, around funding um, and and at, so he was really advocating uh, with the Security Council to uh, that the the stability it's kind of a it's a, a bit of a catch twenty two you know peace and stability can create greater food security and food security can create greater peace and stability um, but that the uh, the a lot of the UN's role is ultimately providing aid and trying to provide food to these locations. They have, I mean, um, 
I believe the Food and Agricultural Organization is uh, also uh, involved under the uh, the umbrella of the UN. Um, I could be wrong about that. I'll look it up and include it in the newsletter if I'm wrong. Um, and that, and saying basically that everybody needs to then play their part in in the distribution of food because there are areas of the world, certainly in North America, for example, um, where there are excess excesses of food. Um, and how can you distribute that uh, to meet the needs, as well as recognizing how actions in, say, for in Ukraine, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine is an even greater uh, international sort of um, crime, for a lack of a better word, because of how it impacts the rest of the world, because food chains are so interconnected and recognize and, and addressing things like food chain security uh, would all sort of be things that that the at least that the secretary general would be advocating for um, and trying to move governments uh, towards. Uh, but mostly, uh, as we see often um, when we've talked about him talking about issues like climate change um, and just trying to resolve some of these intractable conflicts, uh, a lot of it is him just trying to uh, push the issue on international mm. stages and, and shame and push countries um, to do the right thing. Yeah. The achieving zero hunger is one of the United Nations Sustainable Development yeah. Goals as well. Um, which was established in 2015. Um, and interestingly, undernutrition um, was falling for the better part of the second half of the 20th century into the 21st century. But since the establishment of the Sustainable Development Goals in 2015, um, undernutrition has been on the rise, um, mm -hmm. partly due to climate change, um, crises around the world, and in the last few years, COVID-19, um, leading to uh, increased hunger. The goal, the end goal of the sustainable of the second sustainable development goal of zero hunger is to achieve zero hunger by 2030. Mm -hmm. um, but the world is not on track, unfortunately. It doesn't seem that way. Yes. <laughs> but maybe with increased focus from uh, Mr. Gutierrez, that could change. Yeah, I think it's definitely, uh, and, and I think it's worth uh, drawing attention to the, which they know, you know, ultimately, uh, war, food and warfare have always been uh, closely tied to each other, um, and as a, as a tool of, uh, of war to a certain extent, um, but really emphasizing um, the role of food security in, develop, in creating peace and stability, um, and, and, and as another reason to be avoiding conflict is is potentially a powerful tool for the UN. Well, thanks for the information on Antonio Gutierrez, Secretary General yeah. of the United Nations. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm really hoping with a little bit of science news, we can uh, lighten this party up. Uh, this episode of Space News happens on Earth once again. Yeah. Um, and is related to gliding and parachuting by Arboreal Salamanders, published um, recently in the journal Current Biology um, a couple weeks ago. So this is a good paper, Kaylee, because it is a correspondence, which means it's very short, includes one figure, and that figure is a weird black and white video of a salamander <laughs> in a parachute position trying to balance his body. Um, so... Basically, there's these salamanders, these arboreal salamanders, means they live in trees. They live in some of the tallest trees in the world. 
this specific salamander called the wandering salamander or Anita's vagrants. Um, and this guy jumps out of these super tall trees all the time. <laughs> and scientists haven't known, you know, how and why this dude can jump out of trees and he's fine. Um, people are like, maybe he gets away from predators that way. It's a yeah. faster way to get down the tree because it's a pretty big tree and he's a pretty small salamander. So you don't want to spend your whole life climbing. Um, and this little dude can slow his vertical speed up to 10% while falling, which oh. doesn't seem like enough to make me jump out of a tree. Uh, no. <laughs> um, but you're much but, bigger. <laughs> exactly. But compared to other salamanders, it seems like the ones that live in the trees, such as A. vagrants, um, are super good at this. Meanwhile, ones that live in shorter trees that aren't as arboreal um, are less good and ones that live on the ground totally don't have the ability um, we're doing numbers this this episode so basically the one who lives in the trees a vagrants slows his vertical speed by 0.95 meters per second which i guess is a big number for them um, the one who lives kind of in the trees 0.55 and the ones who live on the ground 0.25 and 0.24 meters per second um and so the way, the really good part is the way that the scientists tested this was they're like, we're not going to, they say specifically, we didn't naturally drop them because that would be cruel to drop a lizard yeah. um, from the sky <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and hope that he properly adopts the skydiving position. Um, but instead they put them in a homemade vertical, uh, like skydiving, um, wind tunnel. Yeah. And they just dropped the salamander <laughs> And then the wind, the, like the fan blows the salamander up and they adjust how fast the fan is going based on the salamander's weight. So it's buoyant. The same level of buoyancy is achieved. Um, and then they just float. And it's so mm -hmm. funny. Um, and there's a little video of them floating in the air, uh, balancing. And they look like <laughs> a skydiver with their arms out and their fingers splayed upwards. And basically, so this this one type of salamander has super long legs and like weirdly big toes that can curve <laughs> up <laughs> and so they really do just look like like a skydiver that you'd see with a parachute jumping into an airplane they're in the same position and they can control their pitch roll and yaw um, wow and also glide in different directions the, um it's cool it's also like now i'm visualizing like salamanders flying at me i was like there's two like components <laughs> of space that i'm drawing to this in that i'm thinking salamanders look a lot like aliens but then also like imagine the salamanders world where like these scientists picked it up and then dropped it in a wind tunnel to see hmm. what it would do 45 yeah. times each type of yeah. salamander they do it <laughs> <laughs> and then maybe just let them go who knows but he Yep. What a good, what a weird story to bring back to your other salamander friends. Yeah, they say this guy can uh, control his aerodynamic yeah. torque um, and do aer aerial maneuvering despite um, having no uh, conspicuous aerodynamic features, like other, like so he doesn't have like control <laughs> flaps like a bat or a yeah. wing, like a bird. So huh. um, we. Would like to thank uh, Christian Brown, Eric Sade, Robert Dudley, and Stephen Debin for doing that research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks, guys, or folks. <laughs> we'll we'll probably share the video in the newsletter. I guess. Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, <laughs> so, I think that's all the time we have. That is Papua New Guinea. That is Antonio Gutierrez, and that is gliding and parachuting salamanders. Um, if you want to 
find all the stuff that Kaylee mentioned, make sure to get on our newsletter by emailing us at probablyaboutpolitics at gmail.com. Tweet us at probpolitics. Follow us on Instagram at probpolitics. Um, look up probpolitics Wix site and you'll get to our site. Um, and that's everything. See you next second Tuesday of the month in July. We love you all. We love you. Love you.